Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. Today we have on our show Randy Freeman, who is one of two New York State coordinators for the nonprofit organization Braver Angels. Its mission is to bring Americans together to bridge the partisan divide and strengthen our democratic republic. But before I introduce Randy Freeman, I want to welcome back to our show the three editors of our Halston Media newspapers, Brian Mauschauser. Brian is the um, editor of Yorktown News and the Katona Lewisboro Times. Tom Walagorski, he's the editor of the Somers Record and North Salem News. And Bob Dumas, editor of Mayapac News. Welcome to the three of them. And uh, I'm going to launch right into uh, our first topic, opine a little bit about it, uh, and then I'll hear what you guys have to say. So I just want to say what, and I start it with a question, what can we as New Yorkers and Americans learn from the downfall of Governor Andrew Cuomo? Now, I just want to point out, we're recording this on August 5th. Um, some people might not listen to this until uh, August 12th. So a lot might change this week. I strongly believe the allegations against Cuomo are as damning of an indictment against the media, the mainstream media, as they are against the governor. We must ask why the governor felt empowered to sexually assault women with impunity amidst the age of the Me Too movement. Despite the Monica Lewinsky scandal and allegations of rape and assault by Kathleen Willey and Juanita Broderick, Bill Clinton Former President Bill Clinton is still considered a rock star in the Democrat Party and among the mainstream media. I think he's gone down, you know, a notch, a notch or two because of his previous scandals. And, you know, people want to kind of avoid the topics. I still think he's highly regarded. So I want to ask, did Governor Cuomo think that he was so insulated by the media, particularly his brother on CNN and his own party, that he was immune from the effects of the Me Too movement? Cuomo was billed as the anti-Trump during his COVID briefings in the spring of 2020, where he was competing with the president of the United States for airtime. Governor Cuomo received an Emmy for his performance. But I think the bigger scandal, more than these sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations, was when he was placing contagious patients from hospitals into nursing homes where the most vulnerable population resided. It was a disaster and led to thousands of deaths. Yet he received a multi-million dollar book deal for his leadership, his performance of COVID. It was almost as if he was untouchable and could do no harm. Now, just to kind of point out that he's not the only politician who experiences this, former President Trump once famously boasted that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. So did Governor Cuomo think the same about himself? And finally, I want to know why this is really happening right now. Would this have happened sooner had Trump never been in office? Or would this have happened at all without the nursing home scandal? Is this a way to take Cuomo out of the picture in order to remove a potential argument by prospective presidential candidate Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida? With Cuomo out of the picture, the Democrat Party has removed his political foil, in a sense. And finally, a friend of mine reached out to me these last few days and surmised that this might be in preparation of some sort of allegation against Trump. And the Democrats can claim that they aren't hypocrites when it comes to this. This same person, and, and uh, Brian and Bob, you can surmise who, who was getting in my ear about this, also uh, said that this, is, uh, this could be, this is just you know, sort of surmising, Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris's team that is pushing this to take a potential rival out of the picture. So um, Brian and Bob and Tom, you know, I'd like to hear each of your takes on this. Brian, we'll go with you first. And before this podcast, you sent out an email to our team with some interesting facts and figures. So perhaps you could share that as well. I'd be the worst cable news guest there is because, you know, I'm not going to be sitting here saying he should resign and slam the table because uh, I'm not an Albany insider. I'm a Yorktown and Katona Lewisboro insider. That's my wheelhouse. I wish I knew as much about this as uh, I do about those towns. So, But when it comes to the actual impeachment process, I'm learning this probably on the fly like everyone else is. I was doing a bunch of research this morning. And if Governor Cuomo is impeached, 
He's already said he's not going to resign. I think he's made that pretty clear. Even with the mounting pressure, we'll see. Like we, like Brett said, it's August 5th, so that could change in the next day or two. But there hasn't been an impeachment and governor removed from office since 1913. William Solzer, I guess is his name, theft of campaign funds is what he was accused of. So it's been over a century since we've had a governor impeached and removed from office. And what that would take is it would start in the assembly and the assembly would be required to, uh, well, they're not required to do an investigation, but that's what they're doing. They're, they're doing their own investigation parallel to the AG's office. And once that investigation is complete, then they can begin the process. And the impeachment process, the impeachment would require the support of a simple majority of the assembly's 150 members. So 76 votes to impeach Cuomo. It should be noted that there are 107 Democrats of the 150 assembly members. So it would require many people from his own party voting to impeach him. And then it would go to the Senate. It's a little more complicated there. I guess it's a reading from what I could see. It's all the sitting senators except for the Andrea Stewart Cousins, who is the Senate Majority Leader. So it'd be a 69-person body made up of senators and judges. And 46 or two-thirds would need to vote to convict the governor, the governor to be removed. So that's what it would take. And if he is removed, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hockle would become governor. And uh, the Senate Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, would be lieutenant governor. And that would be through the end of uh, 2022. I guess that's why the majority leader can't vote, because... It would right, it would be a conflict, conflict of interest. interest. Yeah, right. interesting. And do we know our, where our, our local state officials stand on, on this whole topic? Yeah, I mean, I could take a few of them if you want. I mean, pretty much everybody released a statement on Tuesday as this was happening, as this was unfolding, and the AG was releasing its findings. Pretty much everybody from the state level to the county level to the local level was releasing their own statement. They're all pretty on the same line. I haven't seen one statement yet calling for Cuomo not to resign. They've been pretty uniform that they want him to resign. And they want, if he won't resign, they will go forward with an impeachment proceeding. Has Senator Harkin released a statement? He did. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyone want to read that? I can read it if you want. Go ahead. You're on a roll. <laughs> All right. So Harkin released a statement on Twitter. He probably released it somewhere elsewhere too, but I saw it on Twitter. Uh, he said, the report released by the New York State Attorney General finds Governor Cuomo sexually harassed numerous women, which violates state and federal law. He must resign immediately. Those on his staff involved in the unlawful retaliation and cover-up of the crimes must also resign. Then he additionally said, I am in full support of the state assembly and the process of deliberation that now must take place. Although this is a dark day for New York, I'm confident that collectively we will move forward and justice will be served. And is that it? is yeah. one of Cuomo's closest allies in the state Senate, it right. should be noted. He's, he served right. on Cuomo's, in Cuomo's uh, administration. That's what I was going to say. So yeah, he was on the staff. So. Mm. Tom and Bob, if you have uh, anything you guys would like to add with this topic, we live in an era, especially now with you know, as you as you reference like the Me Too movement and everything. Like we do live in an era of you know extreme accountability and everything, which you know I, I think is ultimately a good thing that um, you know people might not be as afraid to come out with allegations against you know people in you know high positions of power and everything like they might have been in previous years. So. I think that there has to be accountability. And I, me personally, I mean, I believe in holding our elected officials to a higher standard, no matter what level that they're at. I'm also a uh, proponent of, you know, trusting the process. So if he's not going to resign over this, then, you know, then we see how the impeachment proceedings move forward. You know, I appreciate that there is, you know, there was an investigation that's being brought to light. And, you know, now I guess we just have to really wait and see what happens. But, you know, like, uh, like Brian said, every, you know, we have everybody from the local level all the way up and even, you know, some of his closest allies are coming out against him. So, you know, maybe the, maybe the writing's on the wall at this point. You know, it's interesting. I agree with you. You know, there's a process and, you know, the political process is a political process in a sense. It's politics. However, you know, just to play a little bit of the contrarian here, I'm very concerned, you know, just as an American, just sort of seeing uh, a little bit of kind of um, mob justice going on as well. And um, I, I don't think we should ever operate with a mob justice mentality. I mean, in the end, um, I just want to point out these are right now allegations. That's all they are. There's not been a trial. There's been no jury. There's been no conviction. You know, obviously this is horrible politically for Governor Cuomo. And if these allegations are true, I mean, it's pretty despicable. And I did read some of the AG report and, uh, I mean, he sexually harassed and uh, sexually assaulted women, allegedly. Um, and I want to point out allegedly again, you know, again, there's going to be a process, but I want to urge all people 
I think we need as a country to avoid mob justice. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. I feel strongly about that. I don't care if you have a D next to your name or an R next to your name. That's just the way I feel. But oh, um, absolutely. That's, a, that's the bottom line. And it should be noted that he will have a chance to defend himself if this does move forward in the if the Senate does move forward in their impeachment. He will have a chance to defend himself and have a counsel represent him. I personally don't think he will resign. I think he's been pretty defiant. Part of me thinks he might even be gearing up for another re-election campaign. You know, without getting too political, I think he's seen other politicians accused of terrible things just go on to continue unscathed. And I think he he probably sees that for himself. I think he knows that as a public, our attention spans are pretty short. People will eventually get tired of calling for his resignation and will move on to the next controversy tomorrow. I think that's the way he plans to operate this. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at uh, look at Marion Barry. I mean, they'll, 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 they'll re-elect you down in D.C. <laughs> I don't have you know any particular keener insights than the average person who watches this on cable or reads it in the paper. But, you know, like I said earlier, it's a story as old as time. Powerful men using their influence in an untoward fashion, you know, whether it's a politician or a or a CEO or somebody like that. And, you know, we've seen it forever. Makes me wonder if we had, you know, cable and social media and that sort of things going back to the early part of the century, how many of these sort of things that we would see, you know, over time. My gut reaction is that he should, should resign so that we can get on with the business of governing New York and taking care of a lot of important issues that need to be done that I think Cuomo... Now he's lost a lot of credibility, whether he's guilty or not. But if there's going to be an impeachment, I feel it should move expeditiously that they should get it up and running ASAP. And like you guys said, this should be applied across the board to everybody. I mean, we had a president who admitted on tape that he loved to use his power and influence to sexually assault women and was proud of it. So I find that kind of stuff gross and despicable. And so I think he should resign. And I think anybody who does that sort of show stuff should resign. <laughs> I will have to say, I think out of um, everyone's thoughts, though, I would say, Brian, I think that your prediction is the most accurate. The governor thinks that people have short attention spans, which I, I think is totally it's accurate. True. And uh, I'll go a step further than what Brian said. I actually think he could get reelected if there's another election, if he's running, you know. Running, yeah, running the, bar, the bar has certainly been lowered. Yeah. So. All right, we're going to move on to a next topic. Brian, for a small hyper local site, we had quite a few people this morning looking at your found dog story. Can you tell us a little bit about it and about the video you produced? I live right now in Yorktown Heights on Baldwin Road. And I couldn't help but notice every single day a few weeks ago, I was driving, I would just see more and more signs lost dog, lost dog. Eventually, I imagine I'm like everyone else in town, it piqued my curiosity. I went online and I searched Lost Dog Yorktown on Facebook. And there's just endless threads from this guy named Timothy Rutland, who was missing his dog from Yorktown. And he was just pulling out all the stops to make sure his dog returned home safely. And his dog's name was Blue, a five-year-old dog. So basically what happened was Timothy Rutland was, not just Tim, but he was the one I spoke to, it was the Rutland family. They were visiting his wife's dad, in Yorktown, that's where, and they were dropping their dog blue off as they went on vacation to Wisconsin, 1,250 miles away. So a day later after they get in Wisconsin, uh, unfortunately, the dog just bolted, took off as the dad took it out in the morning. So 5.30 a.m., the dog was just gone. The dad searched frantically for it, couldn't find it. So eventually, you know, he called uh, his son-in-law and they drove straight to Yorktown and the search was on. They created 350 signs throughout this process. And the most important point I want to get across is that they were doing this all wrong. You know, they went into the woods. They were shouting for Blue. They went looking for him. Other people online were initially like, I'm going to go look for him. And there was initially a few sightings. And when they saw him, they would try and, you know, call over to him, get out, say, come here, Blue, come here. But that doesn't work, apparently. You know, according to... And they enlisted the help of a pet rescue who basically told them as much. And when your dog is missing, when they're in the woods, when they're in the wild, they become a different animal. They become a wild animal. And in and, and Timothy Rutland's words, who I spoke to, they, he's, it's almost like a coyote. You're tracking a different type of animal. The key is 
And I see Tom's dog in the background right now. Uh, <laughs> He's a wild animal. <laughs> so basically, the key is to huh. find a pattern of where the dog is going. And you can do that by marketing in the sense that where people will, you know, with their phone number, people will call you up and say, I saw this dog here. So you want to establish a pattern of where the dog is going. And then you want to set up food stations in those spots with cameras on them. So when you see the dog returning multiple times to the same food station, then you go and set up a humane trap, whether it's like a cage that to capture the dog. Basically, they were doing that. The dog had returned twice to a food station that was actually at the Rutland family home in Yorktown. And the animal rescue is on a way, their way to set up a trap when the Rutland family was in the driveway just waiting for Blue to return. And sure enough, in Timothy Rutland's words, Blue just came out of the blue. The car door was open. Blue just hopped right in the back seat. And that was it. His fur was very matted. He was very dehydrated. He had a lot of ticks on him. But he was gone for 11 days total. You know, after a few vet appointments, after a few baths, he's starting to feel more like himself. That was the saga of Blue. And I spoke to Timothy Rutland about this. I made a video for our website. It's on tappedintoyorktown.net if you want to go see it. But it's a great story and it's very useful information, too. Uh, and, That's and what I found most interesting about it is there's a right way and a wrong way to look for a lost dog. I mean, who knew? You know? <laughs> oh, that's, that's great information for, you know, for really, I think that's every pet owner's uh, nightmare right there. It's weird, though. I, I can't imagine my own mm-hmm. dog turning into like a coyote. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you're right. You think that Timothy Rutland, he saw his own dog a few times. You know, it wasn't just Yorktown resident sightings. He saw Blue in the wild and Blue wouldn't come to him. He feels like he's being hunted. He feels like he's being chased and he just was, he wouldn't respond to calls. So interesting. Hey, Brian. So um, I guess uh, also just looking at your site for the past week, you had just uploaded um, the dog story uh, a day ago, but over the past week, your biggest story in Yorktown remains Panera closing in Yorktown. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and also uh, your biggest story in Katona is uh, the library in Katona seems to be, you know, struggling. If you, am I correct? It's closing on the weekends. Right. I wish I knew as much about the Katona story as I should. I know Tom Bartley, our reporter, is really diving deep into that. But basically, it, it, it is as it sounds. The Katona Library is... Underfunded? They, they, yeah. Well, they say they're in need of funds, so they can no longer afford to stay open on weekends. So they've now closed on the weekends. And they've been requesting more money from the Bedford Town Board for quite a while. And, and so they're really starting this marketing campaign to get the Bedford Town Board to pony up some more money uh, to help them out, to help them stay open on nights, help them stay open on weekends. And it has a lot of support in the community. I mean, just want to point out, I mean, just, you know, just from driving through Katona, I mean, that's a beautiful library. I mean, just right off the main drag and it's, it's really is gorgeous. I have to do some research. I know we're live on a podcast right now, but I don't think so in Yorktown, for example, the John C. Hart Memorial Library is a town-run library. I don't believe the Katona Library is oh, town-run. Okay. So I need to do some more so there's research. No budget, there's no budget that has to be approved by voters or anything like that, like here in uh, Mayapak? I believe the town board gives them money every year, but it's not. People who work there are not necessarily town employees. Mm. Let me let me research that. Though, no, I mean, well, no, that's, that's fine. I mean, we don't have to have all yeah, the yeah. answers during the podcast. Um, t- uh, Tom, it looks like the biggest story on your Somer site for the, from the past week is the Marvelous Elephant Hotel. On the North Salem site, it's about the police going above and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about both those stories? For Somers, we've been very happy to partner up with our friends at the uh, Somers Historical Society. And every month, they've just been feeding us these just little tidbits of just different things about Somers, uh, you know, Somers landmarks, Somers history. And it's been getting a very good response from our readership. And it's just nice to see that people appreciate, you know, stories of uh, the old days, the, the good old days. And uh, as anybody from Somers knows, one of the, you know, the, the local landmarks, you know, the basically the town offices and everything is the Elephant Hotel. And we basically just received a comprehensive history of just how, you know, how the Elephant Hotel came to be and how it came to, you know, the different things when it used to house the, the circus menageries and everything. And it was uh, it turned out it was a fascinating little story that the readers just very, uh, very much reacted to. People can go on to tap into somers.net to read that. And how about with North Salem, with the police going above and beyond? That, that seemed to get a lot of traction. This was just a great story and just uh, all the respect and admiration in the world to um, you know the men and women of the uh, North Salem Police Department. And this was just a great story because it seemed like it started off as something innocent. There was just a gentleman from North Carolina that uh, got off the train at the Croton Falls station and just wandered into one of the businesses and was just completely disoriented, didn't know where he was, trying to get home to North Carolina, basically asking for help. 
And uh, Lieutenant Andrew Brown of the uh, North Salem PD uh, responded to it. And um, it happened to be that the uh, police chief of Brewster and uh, several other members of the Croton Falls Fire Department were nearby. And, uh, you know, they aided in assisting the, uh, the man. But I guess he got very agitated. He claimed that he had been from, released from a rehab facility in North Carolina. And just a lot of his, a lot of things with his story didn't really make all that much sense. I guess they tried to contact the rehab facility that he claimed he had been to and they had no record of him. So anyway, uh, Lieutenant Brown did a little more digging into it and actually using social media, using Facebook, they actually found the man's mother who lived down in North Carolina and they were able to to speak with her and kind of establish what had happened and everything. And once this gentleman actually found out that they had been in contact with his mother, he calmed down and was a lot more receptive and they were actually able to get him into an ambulance and take him to a local hospital to get treatment and everything, you know, for, um, you know, for his condition, which was still, you know, related to, uh, you know, related to substance abuse problems. But it was just a very nice example of local law enforcement really going above and beyond to, you know, diffuse what could have been a potentially bad situation. You know, Frank, you know, thankfully everything was, everything was peaceful, but just, you know, taking the time to go on social media, contact the man's mother, realize that something wasn't right. And it's just, it's one of those, one of those, you know, wonderful stories that I love from local news where it's just, it's a, it was a potential problem and it had a happy ending because, you know, a few people took the time to actually care. And I just think that it's a great, uh, you know, great representation of our local law enforcement and every, you know, like I said, the, the Brewster police chief was just there having lunch and he jumped in and, you know, everybody saw this through to, to having a happy ending. And that's also what's great about local journalism as well is because we do cover those those positive stories. And I think it's a great, great example of, you know, a positive story that we do. So, you know, it's not all doom and gloom sometimes. Absolutely. And uh, and on tapintomaypack.net, it looks like readers can't get enough of Putnam County's COVID statistics. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I guess we all have COVID fatigue, but it's a story uh, that won't stop giving. And so we all know about the Delta variant and and we're all keeping track of that and how it might be uh, creeping into our communities. And the Putnam County Health Department just issued a statement a few days ago that said uh, Putnam County's um, seven-day incident rate has nearly doubled from July 25th to August 1st with a rise in cases from 42.5 to 83 cases per 100,000 people. And the percent of tests that are positive has gone from 1.2% to 2.7%. So it's creeping up there. And this is something that's happening in real time. And we're getting, you know, I haven't heard of any extra deaths, but it's just something to keep an eye on as we move towards with with school looming in another few weeks. It's going to be interesting to see how our school districts, because, you know, our school districts were already, you know, tucked away. They thought, uh, you know, this was behind them, but now it's raised its ugly head again. And I know parents are upset. Everybody has an opinion on how to deal with it. It's going to be interesting to see how they deal with fall sports now. We all thought this was in the rearview mirror, but you know, it's anything but. And so I know there's been a lot, everybody on social media is apparently a doctor or, uh, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) so it's interesting to see uh, their opinions. You know, we'll keep an eye on it moving forward. Uh, I'm in contact with the health department and they're going to, they promise to provide me the data in real time as they're ready to make it available to us. So uh, you know, we're all ready to put an end to this, but it just it it just won't stop. And great. So, uh, well, not great. I mean, it's horrible. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's something we're all definitely concerned about. I do want to circle back to uh, Brian Marshauser, uh, who has some a little more insight into the Katona Library situation. Yeah, just a point of clarification. So, Katona Village Library is what is apparently known as an association library in the sense that it is privately owned, but publicly accessible. And they raise their money every year through donations and through contributions from the town. So right now they are not a uh, town-owned library. So I think that is uh, a lot of where the issue is coming from. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. And, and you know, I wonder if it's just the state of the local economy. What is it about their struggle right now? Combining the two stories, the COVID and the library thing here in Mayapak, the Mayapak Public Library just issued a statement a couple of days ago, and I put it up on, on Facebook, is that beginning yesterday, they are now 
requiring all patrons that come in to wear a mask. Mm. So I posted that up and just reading some of the response, you would think it's the end of the world. But if you're going to Manpac Library to get in the front door, you're going to have to wear a mask moving forward until further notice. It's, it's weird just going to various public places around where I live. I bring my mask because I don't know if it, should I, you know, it's exactly. changing day by day what the requirements are. It's not even just requirements. It's also just, um, it was the last day of day camp for my daughter. She went to something called a smart camp where they had theater and dance. And so they had a performances outside and every parent was wearing a mask. And because every parent was wearing a mask, I felt compelled to put my mask on. And you gave into the peer pressure. Yeah, and, and I, t- I spoke to a parent afterwards. And I, I mentioned it, and they're like, yeah, they felt the same way. So it was probably the first couple people kind of showed up with the masks on, and then everyone's like, uh-oh, I'm, I guess I'm supposed to wear a mask. And, you know, and again, we were all outside. So it just, you know, it's very interesting, just the whole culture of all of this. I do want to point out one other thing I thought was very interesting on uh, Tap Into Yorktown. One of the top stories for the past week was Dean's List. Thought that was interesting. Parents can't get enough of that. So I thought, just wanted to point that out. And then I just want to go, um, you know, Brian, uh, Tom, and Bob, you know, just what, what any kind of things looming on the horizon that you're working on, Brian? Yeah, I know last week we talked about how we use Yorktown families and, and those Facebook groups as a jumping off point. Well, we're pretty airborne right now in the sense that last night on one of those groups, an employee of the Cortland Movie Theater, uh, which is neighboring to Yorktown, they put out a plea basically wanting people to come to the movie theater because they are struggling right now. They can't get anybody to come to the theater and they fear that they may close if things don't pick up. It sounded like a pretty tame post, but it got heated in no time, which I guess shouldn't surprise me anymore when it comes to Facebook. Uh, It even turned political about masks and everything like that. Basically, some people were concerned about the rising COVID-19 cases, not feeling comfortable yet going back to the movie theaters. Others said they would go to the theaters if they knew if mask mandates were in place. Others were wanting to know if the movie theater's filtration systems have been updated. Others, <laughs> said, others said they were they prefer to watch movies on their, in their own homes, on streaming. Others were tired of Hollywood pushing its agenda in every movie. So there's every, <laughs> everything under the sun about movies and movie theaters was just bubbling over in this comment section, which got over 200 comments. And eventually it had to be shut down because it was getting a little nasty. But that's Facebook for you. Was this the Mohegan Lake movie theater? It's the one over in the Cortland Town Center. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, we can sit here and talk for hours about the business models of movie theaters. Uh, not going to do that here. But, you know, a lot of people were saying it was a failing business for COVID, which, you know, might be true. But either way, I'm going to have my reporter, Nick Trujillo. I'm going to have him reach out to some local theaters, Cortland included. I know we got one in Carmel, the Bedford Playhouse. We have one over in Mount Kisco. I'm going to have him reach out and see how they're faring. It's an interesting debate to have right now. Actually, if you don't mind having him also reach out to um, the feature that Tom just did, um, a Ridgefield movie theater. Yeah, the, um, the, the Prospector Theater in Ridgefield. Yes, that's a great movie theater, too. Personally, um, I would love to see Suicide Squad on a big screen. I know that comes out uh, the weekend they're recording this, but maybe I'm not there yet with movie theaters. I don't know. Uh, just the, the idea of sitting in a uh, confined space for two hours. I've, but- I've been back once since everything, and it was incredibly strange to be... And I, I love going to the movies. That's the number one thing that I miss, and it was very, very unusual to be back. I would say the one movie uh, that's going to bring me to the movie theater, if, if my wife lets me, we'll have to see, is uh, because of COVID. What's the, um, the Sopranos movie? Um, Any Saints of Newark. Yes, yes. Yeah. I just, I can't wait. Oh, the prequel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't wait for that. Well, maybe we have to start creating separate theaters, separate showings for people of different ideologies at this point. We can have, ma- <laughs> we can have mask theaters and maskless theaters. And uh, everyone's the only way. Thing. I know the Carmel Theater reopened this past spring and uh, how they've been doing i don't know but I, I know they're a very vibrant theater and they're very engaged with the community i know the big uh movie theater in um the danbury kind of brookfield area that's the parking lot is empty there all the time so all over at lowe's yeah it was low, yeah lowe's tom how, how about any uh big stories coming up in your two towns uh, yeah, um, unfortunately, uh, we did have one coming out of Somers that's uh, still in development, but uh, kind of a kind of a sad note for everybody. Um, a few weeks ago on July 20th, there was a f- uh, four car pileup on Route 100. Uh, cause of it is still being investigated, uh, sent a number of people to the hospital. 
But uh, we actually just found out the other day that one of the um, people injured in the accident has since passed away. Oh, and uh, her name was actually Barbara Whitman, and she was a trustee with the Somers Historical Society, which uh, uh-huh. we, were, we were very sad to hear about. So, you know, condolences to the uh, to the family and friends there. And uh, as I said, the you know the cause of the accident is ongoing. We've been in uh, we've been in discussion with the uh, the state police and everything, trying to get some more information. So, you know, like I said, kind of a kind of a sad story coming out of Somers. Little something for actually both of my uh, both of my towns on a little more positive and uh, uplifting note. I went to uh, North Salem High School yesterday, and I sat down with the athletic director Denise Kiernan. And uh, if you want to get excited for the upcoming school year and uh, sports season, you talk to the AD for a half hour. And um, actually, earlier this week, New York State announced that the sports playoffs are going to be returning to their normal format. Last year, they had to have abridged seasons because of the pandemic and everything. But uh, this year, the uh, student athletes are going to be able to play for the regular state championships as normal. So that's uh, very exciting across both towns. And um, after talking with the uh, talking with the AD for a while yesterday, I'm definitely excited for the fall to start. I have to say, I'm not holding my breath with all of this. Yeah, yeah, that could um, all change. It's, it's, <laughs> no, that, that's even what she said. It's it's day by day with the regulations and masks and spectators and everything. But you know, everybody's trying to trying to keep a positive attitude about this. And uh, Bob, what's going on in, in Maypac? Well, I want to talk about a couple of things. One, the lead story in our paper that just came out today. Normally, a uh, road reconstruction isn't all that exciting, but it's a big deal here. Everybody knows the intersection of Drewville Road and Stonely Avenue because it leads to Putnam Hospital. So it's right on the Maypac Carmel border. It's technically in Hamlet of Carmel, but all the ambulances that come out of Mayapak and Mayapak Falls on their way to the hospital have to go through here. They don't have to, but it's definitely the shortest way, which you want when you're taking the patient to the hospital. So what they're going to do there, and they just had a public hearing on it, uh, the county did, it's a county story, but it's very important to our readers, is at that intersection, I know it's a bad intersection because I myself had an accident there a couple of years ago. Um, the sight lines are not good, so they're tearing it down and they're building what is known as a roundabout, aka traffic circle there. And apparently this is quite controversial because when I wrote the initial story about a year ago that they were going to do this, people were just livid about it. They Apparently we don't like traffic circles or roundabouts. And all of a sudden everybody's become an engineer, just like with COVID, everybody's a doctor. And so they had the public hearing and I thought, you know, the people would be out with their pitchforks and the torches, you know, coming down. But the public hearing was not very well attended and there wasn't a lot of feedback. So that project is going to begin next year. It'll take about a year to complete and it's going to be a real mess there for a while. But when it's all said and done, they think that traffic will move. It'll be a much safer place to drive and because uh, the, the idea is the traffic circle will automatically force people to slow down going through the intersection there and they're going to level the roads so they're all flat you know both sides approach through a hill it's hard to see what's coming as you're approaching the traffic light so that's on my front page today and i think a lot of our readers will be interested in that bob i'm going to opine about that real quick because I, okay. I i've been on that intersection a lot first of all if you're going north on Stonely Avenue, when that light turns green, the people going south on Stonely Avenue, it's still red for them. But the people going north don't know it's still red for them. So people hesitate. A, 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 left, a left-hand arrow would solve that problem big time for the confusion. And again, it's, it's a little bit dicey going east on, on Drewville without a doubt. But again, I I think a couple of left-hand arrows could actually really solve that problem for and make it a little bit less costly of a problem. Well, they they, they originally looked at three fixes. And one of that, the the cheapest and the quickest, one of the ones they looked at was changing the traffic light there and making it a little bit more sophisticated and stuff like that. But they rejected that because they were still concerned about the poor sight lines approaching the intersection and people still moving, you know, driving too fast, you know. So this project's going to cost $4.9 million. It's being paid for by grants from the federal government, so it's not going to have an impact on local taxes. So um, that's what they decided to do. So anyway, a couple other things. I know you guys have talked about Mayapak just got hit by those burglars or those car thieves that come down from Connecticut. We just had that happen to us. 
I'll be speaking to the chief of police here in Carmel, hopefully in the next little while about it. But it happened on Eleanor Drive. I'm not sure of exactly what they took and how bad it was, but I hear that they were just here a couple of days. And for those of my be hearing about this for the first time. Our area has suffered from these gangs of young men who come into town and from Connecticut. Yeah, and commit crimes of opportunity, which is why everybody should be locking their car because they'll find open cars and they will unlock cars and they will steal contents from it and they will steal the actual cars given the opportunity. I know. Uh, North Salem's been hit, Yorktown's been hit, and uh, this is about the third or fourth time now that Carmel slash Mayapac has been hit. I'll be getting the details shortly on that, and that'll be a story for our next issue. And the other thing, on a positive note, I just wanted to give a shout out to the charity United for the Troops, which is a charity that was founded 11 years ago by Jim Rashmit, a Mayapac resident, and his wife, in which they prepare care packages that are sent to our troops for overseas that contains everything from like socks to candy and all the comforts of home, shaving equipment, stuff like that. They just delivered their 25,000 box and the town board issued them a proclamation last night congratulating them. It's a great charity and they do it all through donations. They don't you know, people donate money, they donate these products. And the fact that they've got to 25,000 is pretty impressive. And I've talked to a few veterans who have come home who said they got these boxes when they were overseas and it meant all the world to them. So, you know, we'll be doing a story on that too. So a shout out to uh, United for the Troops for an amazing accomplishment. Fantastic. Um, you know, thank you yeah. for that. And uh, does anyone else have anything to add before we uh, go about our rest of our week. No, I great, great. I see, I see some head shaking. So, uh, <laughs> all right, everyone have a great rest of your week. And it was a uh, great conversation today. Thanks, Brett. Thanks yeah, a lot. Always, always a pleasure. No Thanks. Today's featured guest that we have on our show is Randy Freeman, who is one of two New York state coordinators for the nonprofit organization, Braver Angels. Its mission is to bring Americans together to bridge the partisan divide and strengthen our democratic republic. Randy Freeman is also a psychotherapist with her MSW and LCSW. She works with individuals and couples. With couples, Randy works on stopping the cycle of blame. She focuses on the emotional needs of each person, their expectations of their partner, and the development of each individual in the relationship. With individuals and with couples, Randy attempts to use a therapy room to bring into awareness the subconscious forces that are at work in disrupting current behavior. For full disclosure, Randy Freeman is also my mother. She has spent the better part of 40 years psychoanalyzing every one of my statements and actions. If I have one too many drinks in front of her, she wants to know what is really upsetting me. When I'm around her, I try not to get too comfortable lying down on her couch, and I become really alarmed when she starts telling me that I'm getting sleepy as she swings a watch in front of my face. Randy Freeman, welcome to the show. Hi, Brad. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Randy, tell us a little bit about Braver Angels. I'm particularly interested in how your background as a marriage counselor is a perfect fit for your leadership in the organization. I'm assuming that's what led you to the organization. That's totally what led me to the organization. I was very upset quite a few years ago, before 2016, with the kind of rancor that was going on in this country and the demonization, the stereotyping, and all the kinds of things that went on. And it just reminded me of what goes on between couples who are angry at each other. And I'm saying, oh my goodness, this is like really, when I read about Brave Rangers, it was actually in a magazine that was for couples and marriage uh, and family therapists. And it was all about using concepts of marriage counseling to apply to the political situation. So yeah, it was totally a perfect fit. And the founder himself of Brave Rangers, he is a therapist as well? One of the founders, Bill Doherty, is a marriage and family uh, therapist and a professor at University of Minnesota. And he's actually one that wrote the article, and I contacted him immediately. He has put together a bunch of workshops based on marriage therapy techniques that we use. 
I've seen it being used and it's quite effective. So what exactly does the organization do? What what do you mean it's used? We offer workshops, debates, one-on-one discussions. If somebody in this country wants to talk to somebody in another part of the country that is politically different, that is, let's say, even different in terms of where you're living, somebody who's living in an urban area that wants to talk to somebody in a rural area and try to understand the differences, somebody who's black and somebody who's white who wants to talk to each other, somebody who's an ardent Republican, somebody who is a a real strong Democrat and they want to talk to another human being face-to-face. We have protocols in place so that the discussion goes well, so that people really get to know each other as human beings and really understand maybe why those people are the way they are. You know, why is somebody leaning to the right? Why is somebody leaning to the left? What are their life circumstances that have driven them? We're all humans with stories. And it's those stories that soften the discussion a lot. Now, I'm assuming there's some self-selection going on here. You know, people who are interested in Braver Angels, they're probably people who tend to have an open mind and are uh, willing to hear the other side. Not always. They don't always start out that way. Okay. It is somewhat a self-selected group, but the self-selected group is passionate about reaching people who might not be so self-selected, who may not necessarily show an interest. But our belief very strongly is that if our country is to move forward, and if we are going to get anything done in this country, we have to get along in enough of a way, compromise, even not necessarily compromise, but to accept that we have differences and maybe use our differences to move forward. I mean, think about a couple in a marriage. They don't always agree. They don't always agree on how to raise the children. So, I mean, if they disagreed so vehemently that nothing got done, it hurts the children. It's the same thing with the country. If we disagree so vehemently that neither side is going to bend at all, Nothing's going to get done and it's going to hurt the people of this country. As a therapist, do you ever decide that there's such irreconcilable differences that a a divorce would be better? I don't decide that. Okay. The couple has to decide that. It never comes from me. Yeah. And sometimes there are couples who really don't get along and they stay together through everything, sometimes for the children, Uh and they do the best they can. I mean, in terms of our country, is there ever a time where I mean, uh, horrible to, to think about this, but a divorce might be, you know, a better solution than trying to stay together. Well, how would we get divorced? We have to, we are living together in the same country. Yeah. Unless, unless we split the country apart or unless there's another civil war. I think most of us want this country to work. Yes. Yeah. This, this country is the hopes and dreams of just everybody. And you can see how people are still trying to get into our country. Yeah. No, I mean, I, and I bring that up, frankly, because during the Trump administration, or read articles, you know, with movements with maybe California wanting to secede. And now, you know, during the Biden administration, you hear about, you know, Texas maybe wanting to secede. So, and, and I wonder, you know, I sometimes, you know, scratch my head and wonder, like, what would be so horrible about that? Perhaps it would be horrible. I don't know. Anyway, do you, I want to know, do you have a harder time trying to recruit people from one political party over another one? Yes. <laughs> We seem to be having a harder time recruiting Reds, and I would love to get some more people who lean to the right to join the organization and to be willing to have, take one of our workshops, do a one-on-one with somebody who leans to the left, and um, let them know what your point of view is. You know, people really want to hear your point of view within our organization. Is there a fear among the Reds? Is there a fear of being judged? Especially in New York State. I mean, I'm, I'm sure in maybe other states, maybe, you know, people who lean left might be more uncomfortable. My experience is that there is a fear of um, people being judged who are leaning to the right. The other thing is, I think for some people leaning to the right, they think this is a blue organization. The organization is really working hard to communicate that we're welcoming of people who are, I mean, the organization uh, leaders are strictly split down the middle, half red, half blue, 50-50, no problems with that. But the membership is skewed to the left. And we are very, very eager to get, and especially in New York, because New York 
we're struggling to get Reds involved and we want them. Um, and in fact, I'm hoping to do a workshop very soon about being red in a blue environment. It would be open to people who lean to the right. And it really talks about what is it like for you to be a conservative or a Republican living in a state where most of the people are blue. There are some real challenges to that. Now you talk about lean left and lean right. Lean almost makes me think of kind of you're in, you're in the middle, but you're leaning a certain way. So is it only for people who are kind of in the middle? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I, we welcome Trump supporters. We have plenty of Trump supporters that are in our organization, and we probably have plenty of supporters of the progressive left. We do have plenty of, of supporters of the progressive left in our organization, and we have conversations. I mean, we have Facebook pages where we have really real conversations and try to keep it as civil as possible. There's a lot of work we're doing. We're even doing a lot of work about the media and discussing the media and the influence of the media on all of our views. Are there certain ground rules when you're a part of these debates in terms of um, you know how you treat one another? Well, you're talking about two different things. We have workshops and we have debates. The debates are when we take a topic and we have presenters, somewhat like what you did in one of your one of the programs you did. We have presenters on both sides, and we make sure that those presenters are heard. And then if people have questions, legitimate curiosity questions, they can ask their questions. What you discover is that people on both sides have really legitimate points to make, and they're worth listening to. So we don't get into you're wrong and, you know, my facts are more right than your facts because everybody has their set of facts and we don't know where everybody's facts come from. But trying to hear that maybe there's something worth listening to on the other side. The workshops are entirely different. The workshops are really more geared toward groups of people. We have a red-blue workshop where People on the right and left sit together. They talk about the stereotypes that they think the other side have of them and also look at the kernel of truth. Each side looks at the kernel of truth to some of the stereotypes. So it'd be like if you have a couple who's a married couple and they're trying to figure things out and work things out, they have to look at maybe there's a kernel of truth to what the other person's saying. It may not be the entire truth. So that's what the workshops are about. We have other kinds of workshops as well. Has there been other times in our history where we've been this polarized? I mean, obviously the Civil War, we were clearly this polarized. And I guess, what is the cause of this polarization? I can remember a time during the Vietnam War, because I'm that old, where there was a lot of polarizations. Families were furious at families and you know, members of families were furious and people couldn't talk about it. But I think the big difference and part of what's going on right now that's really changed things is partially social media, because people get into their own little listening bubbles on social media. They listen to all the people who support their point of view, and they shut out people with other points of view. And the AI the on the social media kind of looks for what you're espousing and fills you with people who think the way you think. So we're all being reinforced for the way we think. That wasn't around during the Vietnam War. And I think that's really different. Also, if you listen to the different media outlets and you read the different newspapers, I happen to try to read newspapers on the right and the left and other media sources on the right and the left. And there are media sources that actually show the right and left. I try to read both because I want to understand where people are coming from on both sides. But it wasn't so broken back then. They didn't get their advertising based on their point of view. We had some really good newscasters who gave us the facts, and then we can make our minds up about it. Well, actually, so, I do want to point out there is one website called realclearpolitics.com, and I know my viewpoint is valid on this website because I have a cousin who is whose politics is the polar opposite of mine, and I know that... He um, loves that website as well. He's a social studies teacher, and uh, I know he's uh, introduced it to his students. The realclearpolitics.com really presents the best arguments from both the left and the right on various topics each day. Um, I absolutely love reading it. You know, I go to it almost every single day. I just want to go back to your um, conversation about the AI with Facebook, because what I've also discovered 
I've um, kind of withdrawn from debating people on Facebook because anytime I put my toe in the water, what I don't like about it is that people just yell at people and, you know, people yell at me and accuse me of being a horrible human being. And it's like, why would anyone want to debate anyone if you're being told that you're a horrible human being? I totally agree with you, Brett. And I've kind of tried to withdraw from those kind of discussions on Facebook as well. But that's one of the things that Braver Angels does. Nobody feels like a horrible human being. Again, you can be a Trump supporter. You can be a far left Bernie Sanders liberal. And we're, we're really listening to each other. And nobody's calling you a jerk. And nobody's telling you you're stupid. Or you don't know what you're talking about. We really want to hear what people have to say. And we want to respect people as human beings. Why do people tend to ignore the flaws in their own political parties while pointing their finger at the other? I think it's human nature. <laughs> we sort of do this sorting in our mind to support our viewpoint. And when there's something that doesn't fit what we believe, we kind of push it aside. So I think it's almost human nature. We're tribal. We, we want to believe in our tribe. And it's a survival thing if you look at it in terms of an evolutionary piece. But, you know, most of the time in the world, when we've accomplished things as a country, as a world, we've done that because people have cooperated. We haven't accomplished things when people have not cooperated. So it's really the only way forward, even through this epidemic. There's got to be a degree of cooperation. And when that becomes too political, it's upsetting as well. All right, so I'm going to put a toe into the political waters for one second, because I, I think just we can't avoid you know, the, the current political climate. We have Democrats pointing to the riot on January 6th, and we have Republicans say, well, what about last summer's riots where entire city blocks and parts of the country were taken over, a courthouse was burned, and President Trump was rushed to his bunker when a riot happened outside the White House? Do both sides have equally valid claims about violence and about, I mean, both sides seem to be focused on their own point of view here, and both sides seem to minimize the violence that took place on their side. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think people do that. Uh, and I think both sides have very valid points. Both sides have valid points. I mean, from my point of view, but it's much more complicated than that, too. I think we'd have to maybe speak about that for another hour, and I don't want to focus on that. Yeah. But, but there are issues. Um, I mean, there are some valid points for both, both sides. Has Braver Angels been successful in its mission? It depends upon how you define success. Um, recently, Bill Doherty, uh, one of our leaders, spoke in front of Congress. He spoke about our mission. He spoke about the desire of the American people to see our leaders cooperate. Um, so that was a very pivotal moment. We in New York actually got together with another group um, fairly recently. I think it was around four or five months ago. And we brought in people from Congress who were part of the Problem Solvers Caucus, and we had them talk to a fairly large audience um, via Zoom. Uh, we've been doing a lot on Zoom. So we're reaching more and more people. I mean, we our debates sometimes have hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, is it a drop in the bucket? Somewhat. But the publicity we have around what we do is growing. I mean, a lot of the major media sources have publicized what we're doing. The more we public get publicized, like you're doing right now, the more people know about our mission, the more people begin to think about, can we be better? I mean, that's really the question. Can we be better than what we are? The name of the organization is sort of a play on words from, some, uh, from a speech from Abraham Lincoln. Um, yeah, we you... started out as Better Angels, but we had to change because of some legal issues with the name. So instead of Better Angels, which is from Lincoln's address, we decided people have to be awfully brave to tread these waters, and we changed to Braver Angels. And, but why was um, President Lincoln's address? I mean, what, was, what inspired the organization with, with that address? Because Lincoln was asking people to find the better angels of their nature to try to work things out. It wasn't so successful back then. It, you know, what followed was the Civil War, and we don't want a Civil War we really want to find the better angels of our nature, all of our natures, to try to work together. You know, while you're at it, by the way, our website is www.braverangels.org. I just want to mention that. 
And I can be reached as well for anybody in New York who's interested in any kind of workshop. We've done workshops with lots of different organizations and at libraries, et cetera. cetera. How can people reach you? Um, They are Freeman at BraverAngels.org. So R. Freeman at BraverAngels.org. And Freeman is spelled F-R-E-E-M-A-N. What have you learned uh, specifically about politics as a result of Braver Angels? I think I've learned about politics that it's deeply personal for a lot of people. And a lot of people have come from experiences in their own lives that have pushed them maybe one way or another. I know I probably have as well. And I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. I mean, during the workshops, people often talk about what's informed their beliefs because it helps other people understand them. Things like guns, you know, some people grow up in a different culture. They grow up in a culture where they're out hunting with their grandfather and their father and guns are an important part of their lives and hunting is a part of their life. And they don't understand, you know, some of the reaction of people on the left who, you know, want to put all kinds of limitations on guns. So, I mean, if you understand that people are coming from different places, then you can say, okay, we all want the same thing. We don't want people killed by guns. Can we come to some kind of understanding without you feeling threatened and without you feeling threatened? I also want to point out, and actually you and I had a conversation recently about this, that no human being fits perfectly into one political party over another. You know, people are complex and, and I don't think political ideologies perfectly define anybody. Um, and a perfect example of this, you know, I feel like the debate about vaccines has really almost turned into this weird, odd, partisan debate. And I think to the detriment of the topic and to the detriment of anyone who might be trying to push it as a partisan issue uh, one way or the other. And the perfect example is Robert Kennedy Jr. You know, he is considered an anti-vaxxer, but, you know, besides that one issue, kind of perfectly aligned with the Democrat Party. Curious your thoughts on that. Well, you know the expression, cut off your nose to spite your face. (laughs) Uh Uh So people, if they're feeling strongly about vaccines because of their political ideology, they're hurting nobody else but themselves. And I personally, I've seen people who are on the left who who aren't so sure about whether it's safe. And, And I, you know, I felt very strongly about myself as an adult, an older adult, getting the vaccine and my, and my you know, middle-aged children getting the vaccine. But um, I thought I felt strongly about um, the kids, but I'm not sure. And I want to study it more. And I think that's fair. And I don't want that to be partisan. I want that to come from a thoughtful place. If it becomes partisan, then we get locked into our viewpoint. And once you get locked into your viewpoint, you're not opening up to think about, well, what are some other possibilities? And I think the ramifications are terrible to that. You know, I think we have to be able to be somewhat open and thinking. What are the most unusual relationships that you've seen developed as a result of Braver Angels? Some of them I haven't seen personally, but I know that um, in the very beginning when we started out, there was the head of a Republican uh, student organization and the head of a Democrat student organization who at their college became best friends and roommates as a result, partly as a result of a Braver Angels workshop. Um, There have been um, fathers and sons who've done workshops, who've started getting along. We do have a workshop, by the way, for families. If there are family members who really don't get along, they can take our family and politics workshop. So I've seen that happen. When I've done workshops, red and blue workshops, I've seen people soften. I mean, I had one woman who was a survivor of the Holocaust and she was a Trump supporter and a conservative. And when she began to talk about how she's been ostracized in her community and she's been pushed away in her community because she was a Trump supporter and that it reminded her of uh, her family being Jewish during the Holocaust. She was a baby when she survived or a little child. And everybody just softened when they listened to that and they they understood how damaging it is to push people away and ostracize them. So that was another thing that really struck in my mind. And, you know, other things, when your father and I were putting together a workshop, we got contacted by uh, a gay man who was the head of an organization in New York 
And he got fired when people found out that he was a conservative. You know, it was some kind of organization having to do with LGBT something or other, but he got fired. And there's no law preventing people from being fired for their political beliefs. So it's really made me realize that the environment can be so toxic that it really does hurt people. And I know business people who are afraid to speak out because they're afraid that they'll lose business if they speak out and say their political beliefs, so they bite their tongue. So that's what Braver Angels is all about, is sort of letting people be and think. And and when you have a voice, then you're willing to listen to the other voice. But the minute that you're shut down, you get back in your corner. And I think that's really, really, and that's with a marriage too. You know, if somebody's constantly shutting you down, you get into your corner. But if some, once you feel heard, you're willing to listen to the other person. Are the tech monopolies such as Facebook and Twitter, obviously their staff, not leans to the left, their staff is mostly on the left. You know, they shut down an article, Twitter shut down an article from the New York Post, which is the oldest newspaper in America, I believe, that was negative about then-candidate Joe Biden for president. There, there is a, there's a sense of censorship going on. And I mean, even with vaccines, I mean, if you mention the word vaccine on Facebook, Facebook uh, slaps a label on it. Is, is this censorship hurting the people who are censoring? I, I, mean, I guess my question is, and it's more of maybe more of a statement, is that you know, if you're censoring someone, you actually might be hurting your own cause. Well, that's kind of related to what I was just talking about. If people can be heard, they're more, li- more likely to listen. And I think censorship is just another, and my own, that's my own personal belief, that censorship is another level of doing that. You're shutting down somebody's voice, then they're going to be more reactive and go more into their corner. On a personal level, I think it's important to let people have their voice. But I think there's some, you know, there's some nuances to that, that if we had time, we could probably discuss some more. And and if anybody's interested in hearing more about that kind of thinking, you know, Braver Angels has debates and things like that about just those kinds of things. Um, I'm going to go into two other topics and then uh, I kind of want to end talking about um, Braver Angels again. I don't want to end this conversation. Uh, We're we're talking on August 5th. So, you know, I think the news is going to move kind of quickly on this topic. You know, by the time people listen to this, it might be changed. But um, I don't want to end this conversation without asking you about Governor Cuomo's scandal. You know, uh, we are, you know, in the Hudson Valley, Hudson Valley Uncensored, so that we're in New York. Um, what made him feel so empowered to allegedly sexually assault, harass and assault all these women? I really don't have much to say about that. As certainly as a Braver Angels representative, that's not something that I, I, I think any kind of sexual harassment is just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know what made him feel empowered and I don't really have much to say about that. Okay, fair enough. Finally, you recently moved to New York from New Jersey. You are not able to practice in New York. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the credentialing process in New York. Clearly you are qualified to practice psychotherapy. You've been doing it for decades. What is the hurdle preventing you from practicing in New York? If you can maybe just factually explain what the hurdle is. Well, as far as I understand, to become a New York licensed in New York, even if you've had tons of experience, I've gone through all the supervision I'm supposed to go through. You know, I I, I am more than credential credential you know, able to be a therapist, but the New York process is onerous. I can go from New Jersey to Connecticut or Connecticut to New Jersey with no problem at all. I mean, I just have to fill out a form and pay the money and show my, show my credentials. But uh, New York makes it nearly impossible and it's absolutely not worth it for me to work. So I go to New Jersey. I, I schlep all the way to New Jersey because it's not that easy for me to practice in New York. And, and for our, our listeners who don't know Yiddish, schlep means to... Uh... Just kind of dragging myself yes. to New Jersey and dragging myself back. Yes, yes. <laughs> Unhappily travel. Yes. Yes. Okay. What is the future of the organization? My hope is just to keep people thinking, keep people thinking that we need to, this is how we need to move forward as a nation. I was a little nervous that if Trump wasn't going to get into office, that the organization was going to go away. But that's not the case. The organization is probably more alive and more well than ever and is expanding more than ever. So it wasn't about Trump. It was about the demonization of 
each other, each side that continues to go on. And, you know, the need for us to, and especially now, there's so many issues in this country. We need to find a way to work together. We don't have to agree. I mean, that's really important. We don't have to agree with each other. The right doesn't have to agree with the left. And in fact, it's important that we don't agree because we help offset each other. You know, it, we stop each other from committing maybe the worst crimes. And I don't mean crimes, but doing, doing too much damage by offsetting each other. So we need each other. I, I want to point out and, you know, I'm going to reveal you know, my politics here. But, you know, I think senators like Joe Manchin of West Virginia is actually very brave. He's a Democrat and he is keeping the filibuster alive. And I think the filibuster, it protects the minority in the sense of, Mom, Randy, you and I have uh, talked about um, Alexa de Tocqueville and he talks a little bit about the tyranny of the majority and the whole purpose of our Bill of Rights, the whole purpose of the existence of the filibuster. I don't think the the filibuster, I don't believe, is in the Constitution. I think it's a kind of an institutional historical thing that's existed from, I think, close to the beginning that, you know, people don't want to get rid of, or a lot of people don't want to get rid of. Um, And it protects minority rights because you don't want the majority to go so far one way. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. You kind of want to you know, keep that pendulum a little bit in the middle here. I agree with you, Brad. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't argue with that. And interestingly, we just had a discussion about the Tocqueville through a Brave Angels uh, Zoom call. Actually, some descendants of him were there and they managed his library or whatever it is. And he, they said if he were alive today, de Tocqueville would be appalled by censorship and, you know, kind of the, the wokeism, I, I, you're, I'm showing my politics, I suspect, of demonizing people who, who just think differently, not being able to hear, that he would be really having a hard time with that. So it, it's worth understanding where he's coming from. And one of these days, I'll read his whole book that you told me to read. And it's uh, called Democracy in America. It's definitely a pivotal book in my political understanding of our country. Uh, Randy Freeman, I, I want to thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I sincerely pe- ask people to contact me and, and any organization out there, you know, Rotary, anything, community organizations, uh, political leaders, contact me. And I'm happy to work with you and see if we can put together a workshop either locally or by Zoom. I'm happy to do it. And once again, um, the website is www.braverangels.org. And your email address is rfreeman at braverangels.org. All right, Randy Freeman, thank you so much for joining us today. 